morning, church. Good to see you all out here this morning. Please open up to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Yeah, you heard that right. Not Matthew, but Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The title of this sermon is Deacons, Indispensable Servants. And once you are at Acts chapter 6, if you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. We will, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the Word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much that we are able to gather together this morning freely to where we could sing songs with, uh, you know, the sound amplification that we're able to uh, open your word, Lord, and, and just, you know, see what you have for us. We just thank you for everything. We thank you for um, some of the, the awesome things you're going to be doing in this church even later today. Um, so, Lord, we're just thankful. We're thankful. We're grateful. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would help us understand this word, you know, this passage of Scripture, that you would remove me as much as possible and just give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that uh, we will take it to heart, that we will become more like our Lord Jesus because of what's in your word. And if there's anybody that doesn't know you, uh, you would save them today. And so, God, we just pray all of this, and we pray it all for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So today I'm taking a break from Matthew in order to preach a topical sermon. I know, gasp, right? Topical sermon here. Look, topical sermons should not be the main diet of a church, but there are times where topical sermons can be beneficial. And one such time is when a special occasion calls for it. When you have such an occasion, it's a good idea to preach what we call occasional sermons, right? And we definitely have such an occasion before us today, because tonight at our quarterly member meeting, there's going to be some ordinations going on. First, we'll be ordaining our brother John Weigel as a pastor. This is not a frequent occurrence for us here because we hold the bar extremely high for who can be a pastor here. We do that because the Bible holds the bar extremely high. So for that reason, because we have that happening tonight, last week, Pastor Josh preached a topical sermon or an occasional sermon on the heart of faithful pastors. That was done to help prepare us for the ordination of John tonight. Well, in addition to ordaining a new pastor, we are also going to be ordaining four new deacons tonight. And that's exciting. It's really exciting. And so in light of that occasion, the ordination of some deacons tonight, I'm going to preach a sermon about deacons. So Pastor Josh preached about pastors. I'll preach about deacons. And I think this is very important. I think it's needed for us. 
Uh, one reason is because the deaconate is very much misunderstood in churches across our land. In some churches, the deacons are the rulers, meaning they're the ones in charge. In other churches, the deacons are over-glorified groundkeepers, right, or fix-it guys. Some churches don't have deacons at all. They say every Christian's supposed to be a deacon, which isn't technically true. Um, and then a few churches treat their deacons like they're assistant pastors, which again, they're not. It goes without saying that all of those expressions of the deaconate, they're wrong. They fail the biblical test. And so this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible does say about deacons so that we understand exactly what we're doing tonight when we ordain four more people to this ministry. And so to do so, what I want us to do is I want us to look closely at the passage where the deacon or where the office of deacon was likely born, where it came into existence. Now, some people will debate that. Some people will say this text doesn't have the the first deacons, but instead it laid the groundwork for it. And, And so they'll say what happens here, these aren't the first deacons, but they're the prototype of future deacons. So what, right? That means at best, in this text, we have the first deacons. At worst, we have proto-deacons who became the basis for later deacons. Either way, this text, Acts chapter 6, gives us the origin story for deacons. And because of that, it has a lot to tell us about deacons. And so, with that said, like usual, I'm going to give you the point of the text up front, especially um, for the note-takers. It's this. Deacons are an extremely important part of the church. Yeah, not too complicated, right? Deacons are an extremely important part of the church. Now, normally what I would do is I would ask a question right after I give the main point, and then the answer to that question allows me to give you the structure of the sermon. I'll answer it in four parts or whatever. So now I've given you my preacher secret, right? But this time, instead of asking one question, I'm going to ask two questions. So the point, of the, the point is deacons are extremely an important part of the church. So the first question is why? Why are deacons important? Why does it matter that we have them? Here's the simple answer. Deacons free up the pastors to focus on what pastors are supposed to focus on, pastoral ministry. That is one reason why churches need to have deacons, why it's important. Here's the second question. How will our text show us that deacons are a very important part of the church? It's going to show us in four parts. There's your structure of the text. Four parts. Okay, first, the problem is going to be identified. There's going to be a problem identified in this text. Second, there will be a solution proposed. Third, solution accepted. Fourth, excellent result. That's what we're going to see as we flow through this text. A problem identified, a solution proposed, a solution accepted, and an excellent result. And so there's your sub points for all you note takers. Now let me get into this. The first thing the text is going to show us is there was a big problem. But before we get into that problem, we do need to understand the setting because we're parachuting into the sixth chapter of a book that we haven't been preaching through uh, for some time. So look at the first three words of verse 1. Verse 1 says, in those days. I'm going to just stop right there because that should have us ask, in what days? And pretty much the in those days refers to everything you would read in chapters 3, 4, and 5. A lot of great things were happening, so I want to quickly summarize it so that we know in what days our text is happening, okay? The church was born on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days after Jesus was crucified. The resurrected Jesus told the disciples that on that day, the Holy Spirit was going to descend upon them, and He was going to fill them with power. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is going to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, upon His disciples. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happened. 
The Holy Spirit filled the apostles and they started preaching the gospel to all these Jewish crowds that were assembled in Jerusalem. 3,000 people were saved that day and the church was officially born. So Pentecost is the church's birthday, if you think about it. Now, over the next few chapters, the apostles preached more sermons, bringing even more people to the Lord. Additionally, the Holy Spirit gave the apostles the ability to do magnificent miracles. And so because of the preaching mixed with the miracles, more and more people were believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is great. Church is growing. But here's the thing. Whenever God starts saving multitudes, whenever God starts to do something undeniable in a place, Satan gets frustrated and he's going to turn up the heat. So first he will try to destroy the church and he has, these, he has three main tactics that we see. Okay, one tactic is physical persecution. Make it dangerous to follow Christ and many people will stay away from the church. In fact, if being a Christian puts a target on your back, then maybe most Christians will even hang it up. I don't want to be a target. And so they'll just deny Christ. So that's what Satan attempts. And he tries it right away. He tries it as early as as Acts chapter 4. Very soon after the birth of the church, you'll have Peter and John. They're going to the temple. There's a man, a 40-year-old man who was born lame. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, heals him. The dude starts jumping around like a deer. It draws a crowd. And then Peter and John give their next great sermon, right? And a couple thousand more people get saved. Well, the authorities get mad. The religious authorities in Jerusalem, they get jealous. And so they arrest Peter and John. And they threaten them. And they say, you better stop talking about Jesus. Well, they go right back out and they keep preaching Jesus. So then the leaders arrest all 12 apostles. And then an angel busts them out of jail. And what do they do? They go right back out and start preaching. Okay? And so then the the leaders have to ask them nicely to show up. They do. And then the leaders have them beat. That was dirty. Okay? They have them beat and they threaten to kill them. You know, that kind of stuff. That's what's going on. But guess what? The apostles leave. They glorify God that they got to suffer for Jesus, and then they go out and keep preaching. So persecution didn't work. Satan's first tactic failed. These guys are going to keep preaching no matter what you do to them. So if you cannot destroy the church from the outside, then maybe you could destroy it from the inside with sin and idolatry. So what Satan does next is he entices Ananias and Sapphira, two people trying to rise into prominence in the church. They were trying to gain a great position through lying. And of course, we know that Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning sin, if it's allowed to persist, will spread and fill the whole thing. So had they got away with it, and had they become, I guess you could say, a power couple in the church, then sin would have spread. That church would have become very impure. Well, God guarded the church from this second attack. He immediately judged Ananias and Sapphira by ending their lives. And that sent a very strong message to everyone. Keep the church pure from the inside. Now, it goes without saying, God does not strike many of us dead these days for um, sinning within the church. So I don't think you have to worry about that. But what God does is he gives the church the Matthew 18 process, church discipline, for us to keep the church pure from the inside. That way we don't let the leaven of sin spread. Okay? So that's Satan's second failure. He can't crush them with persecution. He can't crush them with impurity. So in our text this morning, it's going to show us his third tactic. If you cannot crush the church from the outside and you cannot corrupt it from the inside, then maybe you could weaken it by dividing it. Okay? So maybe he could sow bitterness, sow disunity, and then you could break the cord of many strands. Think of how many marriages these days 
are hanging by, the th- by a thread because of disunity. Husband and wife get bitter. He stops leading with love. She stops respecting and submitting. And then the integrity of the whole thing is weakened. It becomes dysfunctional. The kids then get caught in the middle of it and they start to see marriage as a bad thing, which is horrible, right? Because marriage is a gift from God. But disunity can make it look like it's a curse. And so then what happens is this kind of stuff can lead to an unbiblical divorce, which then destroys our most basic human institution, which leads to all sorts of societal problems, as we are seeing before our very eyes, right? And what's even more tragic is this is an institution that's supposed to mysteriously point to the gospel. My point by bringing that up is if Satan could destroy something as fundamental as marriage, if he could do that with disunity, and if he could do that with grumbling, then what, then what makes you think he's not going to unleash that on the church? If it could destroy marriages, it could destroy a church. After all, even though we are redeemed, we who believe, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still struggle with sin and selfishness. We get offended easily. We want to insist on our own way. We start to see brothers and sisters as enemies, sometimes as rivals. And just like this can happen in families, it happens in churches. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's what a church looks like that's completely succumbed to this kind of thing. Now, all three of these kinds of attacks can hurt the church. And depending on where your church is weak, that indicates where these attacks might be successful. For example, churches that are saturated in seeker-sensitive comfort, they will quickly break under persecution. If you're telling your people it's all about you having a good, easy, comfortable life, as soon as the reality that all who will follow me must take up their cross and follow, as soon as that becomes real, those guys are going to split. Okay, so a seeker-sensitive church will crush, will crumble under persecution. Now, churches that want to impress the world, who want to be thought highly of among our cultural elites, they're going to be the ones who get corrupted from the inside with sin because they're offended at the things that God calls sin in the Bible. And so what do these churches do? They really cease to become churches, and they start to agree with the world's morality. Well, that's how you break those churches. And then when you have churches filled with people who don't love each other, they refuse to love each other, and they refuse to serve, you just have a bunch of lazy consumers, then those churches will break under disunity, okay? And so you have to watch out for for where you're weak, where our church is weak. Now, so far, we've seen in this Jerusalem church, the world's very first church, we've seen them successfully fight off the first two kinds of attacks. Now we're going to see how they deal with the third kind of attack, which really will help us to defend ourselves from that attack. And so all that, I say all that, mainly to help build the scene for us so we understand what's meant by in those days. What we see is we see a strong and successful church. We see multitudes getting saved. But this church is raw. It's young. It isn't super organized since things are still very new. Therefore, it's susceptible to attack. Now, so far, it has handled the attacks. When they were persecuted, they prayed for boldness, right? And the Holy Spirit answered them. That's the solution to persecution, boldness over fear. When they were threatened with corruption from the inside, Peter confronted the sinners lovingly, but he confronted them, and then the Holy Spirit removed those sinners. So that's the solution to unrepentant sin within the church, okay? Loving confrontation and church discipline if they won't repent. Well, now we're going to see what the answer is to the third kind of attack. When confronted with disunity, what is the solution? But before we can even answer that, we need to understand more specifically what is the problem within our text, because remember, this text means to show us that deacons are a very extremely or an extremely important part of the church. So the first part we have to look at here is identifying the problem. So look at verse 1. 
The first part of verse 1 says this. It says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in numbers, let me just stop there. That just sums up everything I already said. Now, if you want to know how much they've increased, by this point, the church probably had between 10 to 15,000 people. That's how much it had grown. Now, what the verse says next is happening in the context of this growth, okay? It happened as God is growing the church. Now, usually, we think of church growth as only being a blessing. But with that blessing, inevitably comes new challenges. Specifically, there will be problems in terms of communication, leadership, and administration. And if those new challenges are not handled well as a church grows, if it's not handled with wisdom and intentionality, then something that starts off as a blessing is going to instead become a problem. And we see that here. So look at the rest of verse 1. When this explosive church growth is happening, we read this. It says, quote, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution, end quote. So that's the problem. And it is a very, very big problem. You had one group of widows being neglected. Now, just so we could understand, widows back then were very vulnerable. There was no such thing as social security. There was no husband's retirement that passes on to the wife, okay? If you were a widow, you're likely old enough to where your father's already dead, And if your husband dies, who's going to take you in? What if your sons live on the the other side of the empire? It's not like you could send them a text message, right? You're on your own. And what if you only had daughters? They all married into other families, okay? They're responsible to those families, not so much to you. My point is, there was no social safety net like we have in our society. So the way it would work is widows would depend on the kindness of society, The rest of society would have to be kind and take care of them. And you find this all throughout the Old Testament and even throughout the New Testament. This kindness was a biblical command because God knew just how vulnerable they were. And I'm going to come back to the command side of this in a minute. But for now, what I want us to do is I want us to understand the problem. We could dissect this big problem of widows being overlooked. We could dissect it into a combination of two problems. Okay, First, you have a problem of administration and organization. That has nothing to do with sin, okay? That has more to do with wisdom, okay? That it's, they're just not organized well. The second kind of problem, however, is a moral problem. And with the moral problem, it is sin, and we could divide it into two different sins going on here. First, you have what's called a sin of omission. Now, you may have heard of what that is. You may not have. So what is a sin of omission? A sin of omission is when you sin by failing to do what the Bible tells you to do. Okay, you got sins of commission. That's where you do what you're not supposed to. Like, don't commit adultery. You go commit adultery. That's a sin of commission. A sin of omission is when you don't do what's expected. Like, take care of widows, and you're like, nope, that's a sin of omission. Okay, that's a sin of omission. We're commanded to take care of widows, so you better do it. If you don't, it's a sin of omission. So that's the first kind of sin here. The second kind of sin we have is a sin of partiality. That's where you favor one group over another group. You don't treat them equally. It's like racism, right? But in the Bible, it's called partiality. So again, to summarize, you have one big problem. You have a group of widows being neglected. That's the big problem. But that problem is a combination of failed organization and sin. And the sin is a combination of omission and partiality. So I want us to have that in our head so we understand what the problem is so that the solution later will make sense. But I do want to talk a little more about these problems. I want to dive even deeper into it. 
I want to explain, I want us to understand the organizational and administrative problem. At this point, the leadership structure of the church is small. You have 12 apostles. That's it. That's the leadership structure of the church. Now think about this for a second. If you have 10 to 15,000 believers in your local church, can 12 people adequately organize and administrate the whole thing? Honestly, does any business of 15,000 people, is it run by only 12? Is that even possible? It doesn't work. And then add to this the consideration that these 12 had the job of preaching the gospel to the lost and preaching the Bible every day to those who already believed. Could you imagine them doing that for 10,000 believers? They didn't have YouTube. I'll just record one lesson and then have those 10,000 watching at home. No, to teach that many people, you have to teach again and again and again. Acts describes for us what they did and how often they did it. So let me read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 real quick. Of the early church, it says they devoted themselves. The Greek means they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles were teaching continually, right? And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And just so we, there's no mistake about how often this happened, a few verses later, starting in verse 46, it says every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, if salvation, if faith comes by hearing, and every day people are being saved, then every day people are hearing. And if every day people are hearing, that means every day these 12 apostles are teaching, right? So hopefully we get the picture of how busy these guys were. They did all of this in addition to bringing the gospel to the lost, So getting back to the problem, if the 12 are doing all of that, do you think they're going to have enough time to manage the food and money distribution to the widows? No, there's only one way they could do it. The only way they could do that is if they took time away from teaching the word of God to the church and preaching the gospel to the lost. You can't have it both ways. They either have to stop doing that so that they could take care of the widows, or they have to keep preaching, but they can't take care of the widows. Now, some people would say, well, they should stop teaching. Teaching's not that important. Taking care of people's needs is what's important. But is that what the Bible would say in a situation like this? Should we value God less? Should we value the word of God less and acts of benevolence more? Is that what the Bible tells us? Well, what does Paul tell us about Scripture? 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, or may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what that tells us is it is the word of God that teaches us truth and rebukes falsehood. It's the word of God that corrects our sinful behavior and shows us how to live in righteousness. What could be more important than that? Peter, the apostle in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, puts it this way. He says, like newborn infants... Desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. What makes you grow up into your salvation? The word of God. The word of God. This is very similar to Jesus quoting Deuteronomy to Satan, telling him man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We are to feast on the word of God. Yes, you have to eat. That's very important. But what I'm telling you is the scripture overwhelmingly teaches that learning the word of God is our most fundamental need as believers. Okay? So if you give up the word of God in order to feed people real bread or regular bread, you're going to do so at great loss. And and without exaggeration, this is the loss. You lose the gospel. 
and it gets replaced by a social gospel which saves no one. Okay, So we are stuck then with the situation where there's a real need, but the apostles are already tapped dry, fulfilling an even greater need. So there's an organizational problem. It's clear, right? There's an administrative problem here. Resources are not being distributed equally or even properly. So if it's an organizational problem, what kind of solution is it going to have? An organizational one, right? But we are faced with the reality that this is not just an organizational problem. This is a moral problem as well. Remember how I said the Bible says we're supposed to take care of widows? Well, widows are being neglected here. And I just want us to see in the Word of God how important this is. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29. Early in the law of Moses, it says to protect the vulnerable, and God will bless you if you do, at least to Israel. He says, Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Meaning, take care of these vulnerable people, and God says, I'll take care of you. Well, the sad fact of Israel is they failed to do this. So centuries later, when the prophets start writing, they start, God starts indicting Israel for their failure. One key example is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. He says, your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. That was God's indictment of Israel. And so if the church fails to care for widows and orphans, it faces the same exact indictment, the same thing. And in fact, when we read the New Testament, we see that God's expectation hasn't changed. 1 Timothy 5.3, support widows who are genuinely in need, right? And then James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that our Christianity is a fraud if we don't. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pretty clear stuff there, right? So I think we are reading about a real problem. Not caring for your vulnerable members in your church, especially in a time when there was no social safety net, this was a serious sin. So with all the good that was going on in the church at this point, this was a real blemish. Something needed to be done. And added to the fact that God's command is not being followed here, there's then a second sin involved, which is partiality. Now, I picture some of these people may have defended themselves saying, look, we are providing for our widows. What are you talking about? Because it's clear the majority of widows are being provided for, but some were being left out. And if it was just an organizational issue, then you could fix that weakness that enabled it. But this is not just an organizational issue because it's a specific type of widow. It's not random. It's a specific type of widow being overlooked. Look at the second half of verse 1. It says this, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. It was one kind of widow, only one. In other words, there's one group being targeted and neglected here. That makes it clear it's intentional, and this is partiality. So what's going on here? You might be thinking, what is a Hellenistic Jew and a Hebraic Jew? Well, let me help us out with that. You had two different kinds of Jews. Okay, You had Jews that were born in Israel and spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. They debate that. They're the Hebraic Jews. Okay? Then you had Jews of the diaspora. Diaspora just means the dispersion, the exile. Jews who were born outside of Israel. They spoke Greek rather than Hebrew. Now, they were still faithful Jews, 
but they were seen as less faithful because they could not come to Jerusalem as often as the law requires because of how far away they lived. Additionally, they would be looked down upon because, well, you lost your original language. Now you're speaking the language of the Gentiles. You're speaking Greek. Rather than reading the Hebrew Bible, you're reading a Greek translation, right? So you had this kind of really inner prejudice among Jews there. And what's interesting is, although this couldn't have happened 100 years ago, this still happens today. Because Israel has been a nation since 1948. You have multiple generations of Jews born in Israel that speak Hebrew. Half the world's Jewish population is in Israel right now. Same thing in the first century. Okay? The other half is in the diaspora. Okay? They, they don't have the same culture. Take me, for example. I'm Jewish, but I speak and think in English rather than Hebrew. If I were to move to Israel as I am right now and try to live with the Jews that were born and raised there, I would stick out like a sore thumb. You know what they'd be saying? Look at this American. Little chump, you know, that's what they'd be thinking. And that does go on there, right? And that kind of thing was happening back then as well. So apparently within the early church, it's all a Jewish church at this point, but you have this problem and you shouldn't. Even if regular Jews are going to be eating each other alive over this kind of dumb stuff, surely not in the church, right? Not in the, the community of the Messiah. And Acts chapter 2 explains how we even ended up with this situation. You had Jews from all over the world show up for Pentecost. They hear about Jesus and they decide to stick around. So now you got this church filled with, with Jews who are foreign-born and ones who are native-born, and you had discrimination going on. There's no other, way, no other way to put it. This should not have happened in the church of God, but it did. You had God's people ignoring his commands because the natives didn't care about their foreign brothers and sisters. That's what makes the sinful act even worse because it's motivated by the second sin of partiality. As I said, it's just like racism. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. So all that's the problem. It's an organizational failure mixed with intentional sin. That means the solution can't just be organizational. It has to be a moral solution, but it can't just be moral. It has to be a combination of the two. But now I'm going to complicate it even a little more. Well, the text is going to complicate it a little more. There's a third problem here. If only it was two problems. The third problem comes from the victims. The victims are going to contribute to this. Again, verse 1 says, quote, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews, end quote. So they were like, you're ignoring our widows, but you're not ignoring your own. Now, at first you might say, well, what's wrong with them saying that? It's the truth. It's this Greek word for complaint. It's the word for grumbling. Grumbling is a sin. They were not just complaining. They were not just bringing up an injustice. They were grumbling. There was a type of defiance and rebellion here. And by the way, they weren't just grumbling against the Hebraic Jews. They were grumbling against the 12 apostles who are also Hebraic. This was a grumble against not just the church, but the leadership of the church. Okay, it was a challenge. So this problem is bigger than it looks at first. It had the minority look with suspicion on the majority. It had the majority look down on the minority. And it looked like the leaders, at least on the surface, were complicit since they allowed this to continue. And so what happened is among the minority, you get bitterness and divisiveness. And then, of course, the majority is just going to double down on it. And what you have now is the potential to tear this church apart. Imagine if it did. Imagine if in the first year of the church, you already had Sunday morning end up segregated. In the United States of America, the most segregated hours are Sunday morning, which is pathetic. That means Satan's third tactic has worked in our country. The question is, was it going to work in this original early church? Thank God it won't. Okay? Now, I do want to defend the apostles just because I like them, but also I think they're worth defending here. I don't think they were purposefully allowing the neglect of the Hellenistic Jewish widows. Hellenistic just means the Greek-speaking ones. 
Remember, there's only 12 of these guys. They're focused on teaching all the believers and constantly preaching the gospel to unbelievers. They don't have time to oversee food distribution. They simply assumed it was happening properly. Now, the problem is they assumed wrongly, and that's where they're at fault. You shouldn't assume. But at the same time, they were busy. So I think we should give them a little bit of grace. Okay. Also, we need to understand that the church is new. It's new at this point. It's inexperienced. Let me tell you something. If you've been in any kind of leadership, you understand that a lot of it you learn as you go. You cannot anticipate every possible problem that's going to show up. But when they come, you figure out how to deal with a lot of them on the spot. That's what's happening here. So this problem presents a wonderful opportunity to strengthen the church. It presents the opportunity for two factions to work together and to love each other. It presents the opportunity for the leaders to be proactive rather than reactive and to be able to empower more people within the church to actually serve. That's how this is going to be solved. And if this opportunity is not wasted, then Satan's attempt to sow discord and disunity, it's going to get shoved right back into his face. And then the world would see that those who follow Jesus are his disciples by our love. So with the problem laid out, I know I spent a lot of time on the problem. That way I could spend two more hours on the solution. So just kidding. So the second part of the text is about the proposed solution. A problem like this you can't ignore. It is not going to just go away on its own. So one good thing that came out of the grumbling, even though the grumbling was wrong, one good thing that came out of the grumbling is the situation finally came to the apostles' attention. And notice what they didn't do. They didn't turn it around on the minority and blame them for the discrimination they faced. Hey, if you want to be treated right, learn Hebrew. Heard that before, right? You need to learn Hebrew. We speak Hebrew here, not Greek. They didn't do that to them. And by the way, since you're grumbling, why would anybody want to help you? unthankful grumbler, right? So they didn't do that. But then they didn't go and condemn the majority either as a bunch of, uh, you have Hebrew privilege. And because you have Hebrew privilege, you were born a Hebrew racist. They didn't do that either, right? And I'm sure both of you are hearing these extremes in our society today, okay? Just not with the word Hebrew. Um, Both these extremes are what we see today. They don't work. They divide people more. They're stupid, okay? The apostles are a lot wiser than that. So what do they do? Well, let's look at the first part of verse 2. It says, quote, the 12 summoned the whole company of disciples. The 12 summoned the whole company of disciples. This was the first church members meeting in history. Just to let you know, we're having a members meeting tonight, and we're reading the first, about the first members meeting in church history. Now, the fact that they were all summoned implies this was not during Sunday worship service. They had to be summoned. They had to be called on to appear. And so that's how the solution begins. The leaders don't meet behind closed doors to solve this. This is a problem that involves the whole church. This is a problem where the solution cannot be done by the leaders themselves. And because of that, this has to go before the whole congregation. Now, this definitely teaches us something about how the church is supposed to function. The leaders and the congregation are supposed to work together. The church is not an organization where people watch the leaders do all the work. No, there's a lot of work that has to be done. There's a lot of solutions that need to be executed. It takes all of us, loved ones. That's why there has to be an every-member ministry. And and that's why it's also important to figure out these problems and and to to put them out there um, so people would know what needs to be fixed. That's why it's important to have member meetings. Again, why was this member meeting called? To solve a problem. Very important to have member meetings. So we have member meetings every quarter, quarter. We're having one tonight. If you're a member, show up. Very simple, right? It's right here in the text. Now, anyway... With the member meeting now assembled, 
The apostles first tell you what cannot be the solution. Look at the rest of verse 2. They say to the congregation, they say this. They say, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. In other words, the solution cannot be the apostles taking care of the problem. Okay, That would devastate the church for all the reasons I mentioned. The word of God being removed okay, so that you could have a social gospel instead would devastate the church. Okay, And so the apostles, they stated it perfectly here. They said that if they were to take on this task themselves, they would have to, quote, give up the preaching of the word. That's, that's what they said here. For them to solve this, they would have to give up the preaching of the word of God. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have pastors that preach robust sermons and teach people uh, the, the word of God throughout the week if those same pastors are spending all their time doing all the work of the ministry in a church. It's just impossible. Many churches today are anemic for this reason. They have hundreds of people, but they're on their deathbed. Their sermons are disjointed word salads with no power. And that's why the church is a walking corpse without people even knowing it. But why is the preaching so bad? Why is it so bad in a lot of those churches? Is it because the pastors are bad? I'm sure some of them are. But maybe it's also because a lot of churches expect the pastor to run 20 different committees. They expect him to do all the discipleship and all the counseling. They expect him to take care of the widows and the orphans. They expect him to visit all the shut-ins every week. They expect him to teach every Bible study the church has. They expect him to arbitrate between the belligerent ladies on the carpet committee who have different ideas of what color the carpet should be. They want him to do all that. They expect him to drop what he's doing at any time a member feels like uh, they, they need to talk to him. It could be the middle of the night. doesn't matter. Right, And so at the end of the week, these guys have burned themselves out with 60 to 90 hours of doing everything other than devoting themselves to the Word of God. Is it any wonder they show up with word salads? 20-minute sermons that they probably steal from, you know, sermon audio or somewhere? Because they don't have time. They don't have time. And then they're being run into the ground while the church is crushing their family by gossiping about the wife and the kids. Well... They're not committed enough, or whatever it might be. And then how many churches we got to keep the pastor in poverty to keep him humble? All that stuff. Is it any wonder that 1,200 pastors quit the ministry every month in the United States? 1,200 every month. And what caused this? It's because churches do the exact opposite of what the apostles just said here. They said, we will not, quote, give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. That's what they said, okay? And so... That's the, the fact that people do the opposite of this, that's why these churches tend to be messed up. But if they would do what the apostles said here, okay, if, if, they, if they would just stick with the preaching of the word, then you wouldn't have that happen. Okay? The apostles realize it's far more important to preach the word of God. And if they're going to do that, then they can't wait on the tables. Now, just a little bit of information here, this phrase, wait on tables, uh, refers to two different things, both happening at the same time. It's referring to managing both food and money. They're food tables and money tables. And so if the apostles had to figure out a budget for a mercy and benevolence ministry that was that big, I mean, we're talking 15,000 people, there's probably going to be a lot of widows there and a lot of poor folks, right? If they had to figure out the budget and the distribution and keep detailed records and see to a fair distribution, they'd have no time to study or teach the word. And so for those who are asking the apostles to solve the problem by personally doing it themselves, their answer was, no, we can't. We're not going to do it, right? We cannot leave the more important thing for this. But at the same time, they weren't going to be okay with the status quo. 
Somebody's got to take care of this problem. It just can't be them. So after saying what's not the solution, they then go into what is the solution, and that is in verse 3. So let's take a look at verse 3. The apostles say, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Now, there's a few things that are very important to see here. First, this problem will be solved by better organization. He's saying, they're saying, we 12 can't do it. And we're not telling you guys to go figure it out on your own. Instead, we're giving you a solution. Create a body of seven men. Pick seven. A body of seven who can see to this duty. They will be in charge of collecting and spending the money for this duty. They will also be in charge of the distribution for the widows, and they will make sure no one gets overlooked. Now, ministries of benevolence and ministries of mercy, they cannot run without somebody being appointed to run it under the oversight of the pastors, right? Pastors can't be on that. There has to be trustworthy people who are running those ministries. And then, you know, the leaders could say, hey, this is what we'd like to see. And then they go and execute it, right? And so that's essentially what the apostles are are, are putting out there. See, the the problem is some people think you don't need organization. They think that, oh, all you got to do is just like that the church is an organic body of believers. We We will take care of, we'll see problems and organically take care of them. If you believe that, It's very naive because here you have a church led by the apostles, and that wasn't happening. People were being overlooked. There needs to be organization. There needs to be intentionality. And so this body of people was created intentionally for this purpose. So a body of seven men is going to be assigned to this duty. That solves the organizational problem. But remember, there's a moral problem as well. So the solution needs to be more than just appointing these seven. These seven need to be the right kind of people. And so our, lit, our, our text lists four characteristics that they must have. First, if you look at it again, it says they must have a good reputation. The handling of money in people's lives hang in the balance. You don't give this responsibility to flakes. Ah, my alarm didn't go off. No, no, you don't give this responsibility to flakes. You don't give it to dishonest people. You don't give it to thieves. You give this kind of responsibility to people who've proven themselves. They have to have a good reputation. Now, related to this is a second characteristic. They were told to select men, quote, from among you. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you they have to be insiders. They have to be insiders. You don't appoint this duty to people you don't know. These need to be folks from within the church that have been there long enough to prove a good reputation. And this goes back to what Pastor Josh was saying last week about the importance of growing your church office holders from within the church. It is a tragic error to hire and appoint people from the outside. All you have is a one-hour interview with them, and then you listen to a couple sermons, and then you're going to give them the most important positions in your church. That court's disaster. No, you grow these folks from within. That way, as we grow and disciple people within the body, it becomes obvious what callings the Holy Spirit has placed upon them. That much is clear in our text because the apostles are telling the congregation to select these people. Notice, it's not them saying, we'll select seven people. They put it on the congregation. You select seven people, okay? The congregation's picking it. And so the only way that's possible is if the people have been there long enough to where the average person knows them and can say, yes, they have a good reputation. So as we worship God together and we do ministry together, it does become clear who meets these kinds of qualifications. So those first two characteristics, very important. But without the third characteristic, 
then these two don't matter. Having a good reputation and having proven character won't be enough for the, for the household of God. There's a third characteristic. He says they must be full of the Spirit. Huge. Most important one. Full of the Spirit. What that means is they must be among those who have been saved. They must display the Holy Spirit upon their lives in two ways. First, through sanctification. Second, through giftedness. Now, sanctification is just one of those $100 scholar words, right? Well, it's actually in the Bible. Never mind. It's a good word. You should know it. Sanctification refers to God making us holy, making us more and more like Jesus, okay? That's proof that you got the Holy Spirit on you. So as we're looking for these seven people, or the the people of the Jerusalem church were, they got to be asking themselves, has the Spirit of God molded them and made them more like Jesus? Do they hate their sin and love righteousness? Are they putting off evil, renewing their mind with Scripture, and then putting on righteousness instead? Do they display the following fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hopefully you recognize those. What are those? The fruit of the what? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, That is what should be coming from these people if they're full of the Spirit. Listen carefully here. The most clear marker of being full of the Spirit is a sanctified life, not giftedness. You have people today saying, no, we know somebody's full of the Spirit because we see the power or whatever. It's like, calm down. The most clear marker of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's them being changed. The giftedness is important, but it is secondary. It is secondary, okay? And so if, yes, the Holy Spirit gives them an exceptional ability to do the things that a given ministry requires, then yeah, they should be doing that ministry. So again, the congregation has to know these people enough to be able to say, these men have a good reputation, they're from among us, and they're full of the Spirit. The fourth characteristic is important as well. It says they're to be full of wisdom. Now, the word wisdom, as it's used in the Bible, means to be skilled at life. It's not talking about you having a PhD. It's talking about you being skilled at life. It's the ability to handle yourself properly and successfully in this world. Like, like it means you can look around the world and you could see the way things work, and so you handle yourself with skill. Fools are just the opposite. Fools, in contrast, are unskilled at life. If a person constantly struggles to get promoted at work and, and they don't really solve problems when it's presented to them, or they move from job to job endlessly and they can't provide for their family, then, then they're not living as a wise person. They're showing a great deal of unskillfulness at the way they're doing life. In contrast, wisdom can be displayed in the decisions people make and in the general success of their life. For example, a person who's respected in the workplace, appointed to ministry within their church, and is considered dependable by their neighbors, that's probably a good indication that they're wise, that they're a wise person by the Bible's definition. Now, wisdom is important in ministry because managing a ministry this huge involves uh, money and a lot of moving parts, okay? So these people have to know what they're doing. And I know this is going to like just scratch against our sentimentality, but competence is important to churches. A lot of times people are like, well, no, all that matters is their heart's in the right place. No, their heart does need to be in the right place, but they have to be competent as well. When I was a high school teacher, I used to tell my students, you may have a heart of gold, but so does a hard-boiled egg. Okay, and I, was, and I was letting them know, so it takes more than that. And I stole that quote from somewhere, I just don't know where. I got paid to bully these kids. But anyhow, um, but the thing is we have to, so yes, not only does the heart have to be in the right place, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to be competent. You have to be skilled. Okay, so those are the four things that they were supposed to look for. <clears throat> now, there's one more thing I want to note. 
from verse 3. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to emphasize two words. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Now, why did I emphasize select and we? Because two different groups are doing the two different words, okay? The congregation is the one who selects the men, okay? But the apostles are the ones who ordain the men or appoint them. That's what we're seeing here. And that's why at our church, we follow this practice when it comes to deacons. We ask you to submit the names to us, and then we test them by the qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3, okay? And then those who you recommend to us once they've been tested, if we find them to be ready and qualified, then yes, we will ordain them. We will appoint them to this service. And so we have four men that you guys picked a few uh, member meetings ago who are ready for this. And so then we, the leaders, the elders, we will appoint them. We will lay our hands on them and, and we will ordain them for this duty. Why do we do it this way? Because we want to be biblical people doing biblical things the biblical way. Our hope is when you look at what we do, you're like, oh, that looks like what we see in the Bible. Can't go wrong with that, right? So with the solution proposed, verse 4 then is going to show us the strength of it. The apostles say this. They say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So if you think about it, nothing gets neglected with this plan. The widows get taken care of. The church becomes more organized. And most importantly, the word of God still ends up being the main focus of the leaders that God has placed over the church because it's the word of God being preached daily that's going to grow the church in the first place. It's the word of God that's going to do that. And we're going to see that when we get to verse 7. It's also the, the, the word of God being preached that grows the people of the church in maturity. So with this plan, the word of God still goes out, the widows get covered, they're more organized, all bases are covered. Nothing gets lost, but there's a lot that is gained with this plan. It protects the church from dumping on their pastors so much of the administrative tasks that they neglect to pray for the flock and they neglect a meaningful study of the word of God. This then will protect the church from milky, cliche-driven sermons that equip no one for anything. Okay? Now, I remember a few years ago, I had to correct someone on this. There was a person who was grumbling against me in the sense of our text um, because I wasn't available for them at their every beck and call. And so I said, we're going to have to make an appointment. And my next appointment is next week. They didn't like that. And so when we got together the next week, they gave me a piece of their mind. And the piece of their mind was 20 years ago, my pastor at my old church was able to stop whatever he was doing anytime I called him and he would show up. But you... Mr. High and Mighty says, well, I'll have to meet you next week, you know? And so, of course, you know, this is a whoosh across my, you know, across my face, but that comes with the territory. And I was already bald, so what more can you take from me? Um, so, so pretty much, rather than getting defensive, um, I simply asked a question. I said, well, let me ask you this. That pastor that you're talking about, did that pastor preach expositional sermons where they took the meaning of the text, right, and really just mined all the stuff out of the text and then showed you how to apply it? Or was it a 20-minute sermonette that really didn't equip you for anything, it had no substance? Person thought about it, they're like, yeah, it was 20 minutes, and it was the same old self-help stuff, and I'm like, okay. Now listen, it took that pastor maybe three hours, maybe three hours to put that together, Okay. An expositional sermon, when done right, takes about 20 hours, okay? So, so think about the difference there. When that guy's done with his sermon, he's got 37 extra hours to golf and, and, and come see you, you know, when, when you call him. But if somebody's taking 20 hours on the sermon, and I had to tell the person, some weeks I preach twice, that's 40 hours right there just on the sermon prep. 
And on the, on the weeks that I preach only once, well, I'm still preparing for small group on Thursday. At that time, I was teaching systematic theology on Sunday mornings in addition to the sermons. I'm like, by the time I'm done with my word-based stuff, I'm, I'm 30 to 35 hours into the work week already. The rest of that time then is split between counseling and one-on-one discipleship, training our elder interns, which is our, our next generation of leaders, overseeing ministries, and doing the administrative tasks that, that only I can do, right? There's some things that only a pastor can do. So my point is, for me to do what this person was asking, I'd have to give up that 30 hours of, of work that was dedicated to the Word. That would not make me a very useful pastor to anybody. It just, it just wouldn't, okay? And then there's one more thing you have to think about. Your pastors are people too, right? We have needs as well. And what I mean by that is we're constantly pouring out, but we need to be filled. We need to be filled as well. So we also need to have that little bit of time where we could go over the word ourselves and fill ourselves with the word beyond what we're normally teaching everybody else. So we need time to read some more books on theology and books on biblical counseling because then that just helps us help you more, right? And so my point is, pastors that are too busy doing all the service in the church, they have no time for any of that. And then you end up with a, a less effective pastor and the churches end up anemic. And so what's the solution? The solution's what we see in the text. It is. And the solution was deacons. The solution to this problem was deacons. Now, even if these seven were not technically deacons, this event is what paved the way for the formalization of the office. I believe they were deacons, but let's say we want to sound cool and throw the word proto-deacon out there. If they're proto-deacons, they set the parameters for future deacons. Okay, And so the main point of the text is that deacons are extremely an extremely important part of the church. This is why. This is why in a single office, these seven men solve the organizational problem of the church because they're exceptional at service. They're exceptional at service, and they can formally run all of the service-based ministries. And they solve the moral problem because these are solid and mature individuals. They're trustworthy. They're competent. They are wise. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? And so they can look at needs like our text describes, as well as all other needs that are, are, are not word-based, but service-based, and they could take care of it. Now, the word deacon just means servant, okay? That's what it means. And so, yeah, technically all Christians are servants, but the New Testament does use this word as an official office, which means that deacons are so exceptional in their servants, and that's why I titled this Indispensable Servants. Deacons are so exceptional that they become the leaders and organizers of church service and ministry. They're the ones who who are so good at it, they lead everybody else in it, okay? And by taking care of of that and the widows and the orphans, taking care of the shut-ins, making sure they're visited, you know, and and making sure that believers who are in financial trouble get taken care of and making sure that the property's all set straight, man, they do such an important task. And as they fire everybody else up to help them with that task, I think you could see how important deacons really are because all of that frees up the leaders to study the word of God and to preach it with vigor. It also frees up the leaders to pray about the flock every day. It frees your leaders to be like Paul and to be able to plan for the future of your church three, four years in advance and then commit those plans to God and start executing them. None of that is possible if pastors have to abandon the word and prayer to take care of these other things. No, Ephesians 4 tells us, starting at verse 11, that pastors equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And those saints who are doing the work of the ministry are managed and led by the most exceptional servants, the deacons. 
That is how a strong, healthy church would operate. So yes, deacons are extremely important to the church. They are the very means that God used to protect the church from Satan's third attack of disunity that came from a lack of organization. So we have to ask and answer the question, did the church accept this proposed solution? Did they see its brilliance? Well, yes, and that's the third part of the text, the solutions accepted. Look at verse 5. It says this. It says, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Okay, so the church saw the wisdom in the proposal. They're like, yes, this is a great idea. And so they accepted the solution, and they chose the seven men. And what's interesting is the church here, and this is why leaders need to trust their church more, the church displayed some amazing wisdom here. What do I mean by that? All seven of these names are Greek names. You might be saying, well, what's the significance of that? Remember, the complaint was that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being neglected. So this was a chance to squash all the prejudice and act like God's people are supposed to act. So the majority of the church, the Hebraic-speaking Jews, because it's going to take the majority to pull this off, the majority shows their love to the minority by selecting people from the minority to run this extremely important ministry. That's amazing. It showed that the prejudice was being buried here. It also showed that they really do care about these widows, and they want these widows to feel loved and cared for. It also showed that at the end of the day, they were getting to know their Greek brothers, their Greek Jewish brother, Greek-speaking Jewish brothers, because they knew these guys enough to know they met these qualifications. So this whole solution was showing that, wow, this church is coming together, and they're doing this right. This was a big win. And then you even think about it furthermore, two of these guys, Stephen and Philip, are going to go on and be preachers, okay? So for some people, being a deacon is a stepping stone to becoming a preacher. And it was definitely the case for two of these seven. Now, the rest, we could probably assume they remained as deacons. But all in all, all, good win for the church, greater organization and a pool from which to pick future pastors. So in verse 6, we see they get ordained. It says this, it says, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So here we see the first ordination ceremony for deacons. It wasn't filled with pomp and circumstance. Instead, it was just the apostles functioning like pastors here. They simply prayed over them. They laid their hands on them, which means they're, they're copying what you see in the Old Testament. And bam, now you had these, these deacons, this new office. And loved ones, you're going to see the same thing tonight. So with the solution accepted, We're just left with one question. Did it solve the problem? And if so, what was the result? Well, that brings us to the fourth and final part of the text, verse 7, the excellent result. It's very clear. Look at verse 7. Did it work? It says, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. I can't think of a better success statement than this. The plan worked. It said the church continued to grow And even the enemies of the church, the priests in Jerusalem, were the foremost enemies of the church. And yet this is telling us even a large group of them, it's Al's relatives, the the Kohanim, all the Kohans out there. They were the priests. They started becoming Christians, a lot of them. Okay, A lot of them started started to believe. Why? Why did the church grow? Why did did the, the priests also start joining the church? Look at the first few words again. It says, so the word of God spread. So the word of God spread. That's why. That's why the growth happened, okay? And why did the word of God spread? Because deacons were appointed, which freed up the apostles who were functioning as pastors 
so they could devote themselves further to the word, which then caused the word to spread, which then caused the growth. And I could tell you that growth also would lead to a growth in resources, which will only help the deacons have more resources to take care of the widows. It is a win-win. Organization's not a bad thing, especially when it's biblical and it leads to this, okay? So, uh, what more can I say? Are deacons important? Did we read these seven verses? Yes. Are they important? Yes. It's, it's that simple. I hope we can see very clearly how important they are. They are not just over-glorified servants. They are an essential component of a healthy church. Pastors cannot be what they are supposed to be without a solid group of deacons. And I also want you to have all of that in mind tonight. Everything that's been said today, have it in mind tonight as we ordain four more godly men as deacons. I pray that this origin story of the deacons will be at the forefront of your thinking about what they do and why these men and what they do here are so important. I hope it shows you that they are worth following when it comes to service. It also points out to you those who are of exceptional character. Let me tell you this. The character qualifications for a deacon and pastor are almost the same. So if you have a deacon who's got the same character as a pastor, but the deacon also has the ability to teach you have a future pastor in the making, very likely, okay? So again, good stuff that, that we see in this text, okay? Now, our deacons here at Sovereign Way Christian Church, they are essential. They do keep the property fixed up and clean. They do reach out to the uh, membership regularly to see if there's any needs. And if the needs are spiritual, they let the pastors know so that we can provide the required care. They make sure that our shut-ins are not forgotten. They make sure that none of our own starve. Our deacons here, loved ones, are worthy Christians, and I pray that their reward from the Lord will be great. I think as we have Pastor Appreciation Month, I think we need Deacon Appreciation Month as well. They deserve to be appreciated for everything they do. And so I look forward tonight to laying hands on Joe Alva, John Crespo, Jim Jenkins, and Raymond Seward. These are the men you selected. These are the men from among us. They have amazing reputations. They are full of the Holy Spirit, they are wise, and our text shows us just how much we need them. And they will be joining an amazing company of spiritual heroes, David Belvin, Jeff De La Rosa, Charlie Evelyn, Ronnie Gonzalez, Nick O'Neill, and Dan Roy. So please keep all of these exceptional servants in prayer. We need them. They are indispensable servants. Now, as I close... I'm going to go into an invitation to unbelievers, which I was definitely having a hard time with this. I'm like, this is all a in-house, like how we organize as a church. How do I get from this to Jesus? Well, there's at least a passage where Jesus is called a servant, the word for deacon. So here's the thing. We can have exceptional servants here because the greatest servant of all, our Lord, the God-man, came down to this earth 2,000 years ago, came in the flesh on a rescue mission to save us because we were all doomed because of our sin. So he came down as the servant of the Lord. That's what Isaiah calls him. He earned perfect righteousness, what we failed to do. And then he died on the cross to take our penalty for us. And then he rose on the third day and is at the right hand of the Father. And if you turn from your sins and you believe on Jesus as Lord, you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be credited with his righteousness. And then like him, you will become a a, a great servant unto the Father. So do not remain in your sins. Otherwise, you're going to be condemned for all eternity. So turn away from your sins, turn to Jesus in faith, and, uh, you know, be awesome. And then you can join us, right, and, uh, and start serving. So with that said, we're going to pray. And, and by the way, if you have any questions about 
what it means to become a Christian, come talk to me or any of the leaders here, and we'll gladly walk you through this. What we're going to do right now is we're going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to give the communion warning, and then the worship team is going to come back up and uh, get us prepared for the Lord's Supper. So let's go to the Lord. God, 